There's a little boy who went with his sister to spend a couple weeks on their grandparents' farm over the summer. And when he got there, his grandfather gave him a slingshot. And the little boy went out into the woods and he practiced and practiced and practiced with that slingshot and he just couldn't hit anything. And one day as he was walking back up to the house, he spotted his grandmother's duck. And just instinctively, he took that slingshot and lined it up and let it fly. And wouldn't you know it, he hit that duck right in the head and it, it died. And he panicked, so he didn't know what to do. So he takes the duck and he hides it in the woodpile. And he looks up and he sees that his sister had seen the whole thing. And the grandmother comes out and says, um, Hey, Sally, I need you to come help me with the dishes. And Sally leans over and says, That's okay. Johnny's going to do it. She leans over and says, remember the duck. So Johnny goes inside, and he does the dishes. The next day, they're sitting there, they're having breakfast, it's time to clean up, and Grandpa comes in and says, hey kids, let's go fishing, and Grandma says, no, I'm sorry, I need Sally's help here getting dinner ready tonight. And Sally says, no, Grandma, it's taken care of, Johnny's going to do it. She leans over and says, remember the duck. And this goes on for about three or four days. This poor little boy, every, he's doing all of his chores and all of his sister's chores. And finally, one day, she says something. He says, I can't take it anymore, Grandma. I've got to tell you the truth. I killed your duck with a slingshot. And Grandma says, I know. I saw it through the window, but I already forgave you because I love you. But I was just wondering how long you were going to let her make a slave of you. See, many of us, become slaves to our guilt. We feel guilty about our sin. We feel ashamed about our sin. And what God wants us to know is that he loves us and that through Jesus Christ, he has already forgiven us. This morning, we're going to look at David. Last week, we saw how David took on Goliath. We looked at his stature, his resources, and his experience. And we saw that from a human perspective, David had none of those things, but he didn't see things through through a human perspective. He looked through the eyes of God. And so he was able to go out and defeat this giant. And this morning we're going to see a man who makes a big mistake. If you have your Bibles, you can feel free to open to 1 Samuel chapter, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And we're just quickly going to retell the story of David and Bathsheba. And many of you may be somewhat familiar with this story. But it starts like this. It was the springtime when kings go out to war. Yet David did not follow his army and its commander, Joab. David decided to stay in the castle. So David stays there in his palace, and one night, in the cool of the evening, he's walking around the roof of the palace, and he looks out across the city, and he sees a woman on her rooftop bathing. And David is struck by the beauty of this woman, and he calls and he asks, who's Whose wife is this? Bring her to me. And he finds out that it's the wife of one of his top soldiers, a man named Uriah. And David has no concern for Uriah. He only is concerning himself with what's right in front of him. So he decides to sleep with Bathsheba. Shortly after, he receives word that Bathsheba is pregnant. She tells him, sends him a message saying, Hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. My hus- husband's been off at war. Uh, so it's your baby. And David decides he's, he's got to cover this up. 
So he sends for Uriah, and he brings Uriah in. He says, you're such a faithful servant. I want to send you home. I want you to go home and be with your wife, thinking that Uriah will sleep with his wife, and it'll be close enough that Uriah will think it's his baby. But Uriah comes back the next day. The report comes back to David that Uriah didn't go and sleep with his wife. So he calls Uriah and says, what's, what's the problem? Why didn't you go home and spend time with your wife? He says, my men are out fighting. How could I possibly go home and be with my wife when my men can't be with their wives? Uriah was a righteous man. So David decides that he's, he's got to do something. He's got to get Uriah so stinking drunk that he won't remember what happens. So he invites him to a party to eat with the king, and he gets Uriah drunk, thinking surely Uriah is going to go home drunk and sleep with his wife. But Uriah, even in his drunkenness, sleeps at the gate of his house. Doesn't go in to be with his wife. David's got to do something, so he decides, well, if I can't get him to sleep with his wife, then I've just got to get rid of him altogether. So he writes a letter to Joab and says, put this man on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest, and when it gets bad, pull back and leave Uriah by himself. And he gives the letter to Uriah. He essentially gives Uriah his own death warrant. Uriah takes it to Joab, and Joab's thinking, there's no way this could be right. And David says, no, this is what I want you to do. And so that's exactly what happens. Uriah ends up on the front lines. The fighting gets fierce. The army of Israel pulls back, leaving Uriah by himself, and he's struck down and killed. David now says, well, the time of mourning has passed, so bring me Bathsheba. I'm going to marry her, and everybody will just think that we got married, and, and it's my baby, and it's legitimate. And about a year, year goes by. The baby's born. The baby gets sick. David can't figure out why. And a man named Nathan, who's a prophet, comes to David. And he tells David this story about a shepherd. The shepherd had just one sheep that he loved and cared for. And there was a very powerful man who lived next door. And he had all these sheep. He had all this stuff. He was a very, very wealthy man. He could have had anything he wanted. Yet when his guests come, he goes to that poor man and he steals his sheep, slaughters it, and serves it to his guest. And David says, bring me that rich man. He's going to pay for what he did. And Nathan looks at him and says, David, you are the man. David knows immediately what he's talking about. He knows that Uriah was the poor man who had nothing. The only thing he had in the world was his beautiful wife, Bathsheba, whom he loved and cared for and cherished. David stole that and stole his life. So Nathan Nathan confronts David with his sin. And David is broken. David's broken by his sin. And he writes one of my favorite and I think one of the most powerful psalms that we have in Psalm 51. And this morning we're going to look at the story of David because for a year David lived with guilt. For a year he was overcome by this sense of guilt. And, and I, I want us to see this morning that, that guilt is not something that God desires for us. That feeling of shame, that feeling of guilt is not what God desires for us. What he desires for us is conviction. That we would come to a point where we wouldn't be paralyzed, where we wouldn't feel overwhelmed by the weight of our sin. Rather, we would see that that we are sinful, that we are sinners, but that he has done something about it. That he has done something about it and that, that we can be restored in relationship to him. And why I love this story is because David had 
had defeated Goliath with full reliance on God. And what we're going to see in this story is that the way that David overcomes his guilt is by fully relying on God. It's the same giant, the same battle. He's just having to learn it in a new way. And there's two, two main parts to this psalm in Psalm 51. The first we're going to see David's going to repent of his sins and his sinfulness. And the second we're going to see that David is going to repent of his self-sufficiency. And he's going to turn from that. So I want us to look this morning at Psalm 51 beginning in verse 1. From the choir direct, for the choir director, a Davidic psalm when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my, my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Now the first thing I want us to see in these first six verses is that the way we get past guilt the way that David got past his guilt was to, number one, confess and seek mercy. This is what we see from the king. He confesses his sin and he seeks God's mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is when we ask God to withhold what we rightly deserve. When we seek mercy, we're asking God to withhold what we rightly deserve. And David says, hey, look, your hand was against me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David says, look, God, I recognize you are perfectly holy. You are perfect in all that you do, and I am not. And so when I mess up, when I, when I mess things up, Lord, you are perfectly right in passing judgment on me. Now, that's not a very popular thing for us to think as Americans, is it? Because we like to think that we're basically good. But what, is, what does David say? David says, I am conscious of my sin. My sin is always before me. I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David's saying, from the moment I was conceived, I was a sinner. He recognizes he recognizes not only his sin, but his sinfulness. He says, look, this is, this is not some aberration of my character. This is no freak accident. It was in character. This is an extreme expression of the warped creature that David, not that he had become, but that he had always been. Did you catch that? This wasn't about who David had become. This is about who he had always been. He says, I have always been a sinner. And this is just an extreme expression of that, God. I recognize that. I recognize my sin. I recognize my sinfulness. We should never be amazed at what our flesh can do. We should never be amazed at what our flesh can do. And that's where, that's where David is. But we see that he calls out for mercy. And what I love is that David has absolute confidence that God is going to grant him mercy. Why does he have that confidence? Well, he tells us in verse 1. He says, be gracious to me, God. According to what? According to your faithful love. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed. 
It's used over and over again throughout the Old Testament to describe God's covenant faithfulness, that he has promised that those who would turn to him in repentance, that he would restore their fellowship, that he would restore that relationship with him. And that's where David is. So I love this in verses 1 and 2. He uses three different terms for cleansing. He says to blot out. That's the idea of erasing. It's like taking uh, an accounting ledger and just erasing the debt that is owed. That's the illustration that David is using. He says wash. The term that's used there is the idea of washing clothes. He's saying, look, there is stinky, nasty, dirty clothes that I am, and they need to be washed. They need to be cleansed. And then he uses the word cleanse. This is not cleansing of the sin, but cleansing of the sinner. David says, God, wash me clean. Make me clean again. And then he uses three different words for rebellion to pair with those. First, uh, excuse me, for sin, the first one he uses is rebellion. Rebellion is the disposition of the heart in a direction other than God. So when the heart says, I want something other than what God wants, that's rebellion. And then he uses the word guilt. This is simply wrongdoing or waywardness. This is the disposition of our acts away from the acts that God would have us perform. And then lastly, he uses just the word sin, to miss the mark. David says, I've, I've missed the mark. I've missed the mark. And I missed the mark not because of some aberration of my character, but because of who I am. I'm a sinner. Yet David is now no longer experiencing guilt. We see a man who recognizes his sin, who recognizes his sinfulness, but he's not sitting there beating himself up. How is it that David could have committed murder, lying, adultery, all of these things, and yet he's not weighed down by guilt? What is it that's different about David? I think it's his perspective. It's his perspective on sin and on himself. David has gotten to a point where he's no longer comfortable with his sin. You see, for a year, David had lived with his sin, and he had lived with this weight and with this burden, just like the boy in the story, where he let that guilt weigh him down, and he'd become a slave to that. But he'd lived with it so long that it kind of became his new normal. And I think he started living and just, well, this is just the way it is now. And I think many of us get to that point in our sin, that we are so trapped in our sin, we're so trapped in our guilt, that we think, well, this is just the way that it is. But that's not God's desire for us. God's desire is not for us to feel a burden. In fact, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's desire is not that we would be burdened by our sin, but that we would experience freedom from our sin and from the weight of our sin. I love what David says in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. He says this, he says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat, Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin, Selah. Psalm 32, many scholars believe, is a companion psalm to Psalm 51. And so David is saying, hey, look, when I tried to conceal it, when I tried to hide everything from everyone, it just weighed me down. It was like a rock tied around my neck. It was breaking my bones. But when I confessed, when I confessed, I felt the weight lift off of me. 
In first part of that Psalm, Psalm 32, David says, How happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. He knows that when he confesses, God is faithful and just to forgive his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness, as John tells us in 1 John 1, 9. Now I wonder how many of us experience what David is experiencing. We experience the guilt, yet we can't get rid of it. Maybe even we, can, we confess and we come to God and we say, yeah, I acknowledge that what I did was wrong. And I think there's a difference with David. You see, David didn't just confess. He didn't just say, yeah, it was wrong. David actually repents. He says, it's wrong and I don't desire it anymore. I'm so disgusted by my sin, not with myself, but with my sin, that I want it out of my life. And he develops a repentance plan to turn away from it, to walk away from it. And I wonder how many of us, how many of us are truly disgusted at our own sin? So much so that that the thought of it breaks our hearts. Are we finally at that point where we become disgusted with our own sin? I think it's easy for us to look at other people around us. And we look and we say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not lying about anything. And so I'm pretty much okay. I'm doing all right. But then I would, I would remind you of all the things that Jesus says in the New Testament when he says, if you have looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in, her heart, in your heart. If you say to your brother, you fool, you've committed murder. And we think that we're okay just because, well, we haven't done the bad ones. But how many of us still hold on to things like, like greed, bitterness, anger, lust, pride. And you know how I think pride shows up most often? It's an unwillingness to follow those, those in positions of authority. How many of us, when we go to work and our boss gives us a direction, we get resentful, we get angry? How many of us, when our spiritual leaders say something that, that maybe challenges us a little bit, we just say, you know what, I don't like that. Pastor said something I didn't like, so I'm going to a new church. You laugh. If you can't say amen, say ouch, right? We get so prideful, so full of ourselves. How many of us struggle with with jealousy? If you remember the first part of this series, uh, the Israelites come to Samuel and say, we want a king so that we can be like everyone else. How many of us in our jealousy look at our neighbor's cars, their clothes, their house, and we say, man, I I wish we had granite countertops like everyone else. I wish we had hardwood floors like everyone else. We want to be like everyone else. How many of us struggle with gluttony? And I'm not talking just about food. I'm talking about overconsumption of media. Overconsumption in general. We don't have cash? That's fine. We'll just put it on a credit card. Charge it. Charge it. We'll pay it off later. We know that that is not God's desire for us. We struggle with idolatry, anything that comes before God. We place so many things above him. Galatians, excuse me, Colossians 3.3 3 tells us this. It says, For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ the Messiah in God. And then Colossians tells us, it says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to remind us of what Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. He tells us this. 
He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anguish, anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar, right? So he's saying, look, this, this is not exhaustive, right? So fill in the blank, whatever your sin is. He says, I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Paul lists a very similar list, and then he says, and such were some of you before you came to know Jesus Christ. And then we have these great reminders that our life is no longer our own. We are no longer what we once were because of Jesus Christ. And I think that's where David is. He says, God, I am not this person because of you. I'm not this person because of you. And that's the next thing that we see is that he's going to repent of self-sufficiency and he's going to experience restoration and renewal of relationship. Let's look at verse 7. He says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin. Blot out my guilt. God created me a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. What is David saying here? David is saying, God, I repent of my self-sufficiency. I'm relying on you and you alone so that I can experience restoration and renewal. David's desire is that his relationship with God would be restored. See, he recognizes that when he sinned, his fellowship with God was broken. In verse 11, he, he prays that God would not take his Holy Spirit from him. Now, we didn't cover Saul, but we know that Saul was king in Israel. In chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, we read about Saul's failure to obey God. And Samuel says, because you didn't obey God, because you disobeyed, God is taking the kingdom from you. And as a sign of that, a symbol of that removal, God removes the Holy Spirit from him. And what we have to understand is that in the Old Testament, this is before Jesus came, before Jesus died, is resurrected, and the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. So what would happen is that the Holy Spirit would come upon someone for a season or for a specific purpose, and then it would, it would go, right? It was a special filling, a special empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But we know that when Christ came and died, that once we put our trust in Jesus Christ alone, we are sealed with the Spirit. What David is saying is, so what we need to understand as believers today is that we cannot lose the Holy Spirit the way David is talking about, but we can lose fellowship with God. We can lose his help in our lives when we try to depend on our own self, when we ignore the sin in our lives. There's a barrier that comes between us until we return to the Lord. But what David had seen is he saw what happened to Saul, and he says, God, don't don't let that happen to me. Don't remove your presence from my life. And this is the big difference between Saul and David is that Saul never repents. Saul never comes to a point where he says, I'm broken about my sin, but David does. David repents. David continues to seek the Lord and he continues to seek that fellowship with God and that's the big difference. He seeks that renewal of relationship, not only with God, but also with his people. And I want to encourage you that There are often times when you find yourself in sin, you find yourself feeling shame, 
and the enemy wants nothing more than to separate you from God's people, and you think, I can't go back to church. If they only knew what kind of person I was, if they only knew what I had done. And that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy who wants to separate you from God and his people because he knows that if you surround yourself with God's people, they'll encourage you. They'll build you back up and they'll, they'll point you in a direction towards God. It's not always easy. David had to go through some difficult things as he was being restored in his relationship with God. There were still consequences for his sin. Yet he was able to understand that the most important thing was that restoration of relationship with God. See, guilt will always drive you away from relationship with God and his people. Conviction will draw you deeper into those relationships. Satan brings accusation. He condemns us and he separates us. But God, through his Holy Spirit, convicts us. He reminds us that we're forgiven and gives us freedom in Christ and he restores our relationship. Now many think when it comes to their sin, they find themselves thinking, I can't make up for this. I can't make up for this. Or or, or there's got to be something I can do that'll make God happy with me again. I came across a story recently of a a minister. He was a a, a Christian leader, well-known Christian leader who was caught in sin, and he, he had to give up leading his ministry. And many years later, he's speaking. He's invited to speak to a group of young pastors. And he said, you know, I always thought that I understood grace. I always preached grace. But the major difference between the man that I am today and the man that once climbed the ministerial ladder is that I know that God loves me because of grace. I know that today... As a fallen Christian leader, I know that God loves me because of grace. Much of my ministry, I preached grace, but really believed that God loved me because I was good. How many of us believe, we say we believe, that we're saved by grace, yet our actions, our feelings betray us? And what we find is that we're continually trying to earn God's love by doing good things, by doing the right thing, rather than being as David is, seeing as David sees. He sees that there is nothing good in himself. There is nothing he can do to restore that relationship. Later in the psalm, he's going to say, if I could bring sacrifices that would make you happy, I would, but I know that it's not in sacrifices. You're looking for a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's what you desire. It's nothing that I can do. It's all about you. Notice, he says, who's restoring? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Who does the restoration? God does it. Create in me a clean heart. Who's doing the creating? Who's doing the cleaning? God does it. David says, this is not something I can do on my own. He's repented of his self-sufficiency. I want us to look lastly at the rest of this chapter. Starting in verse 13. David says, if you'll restore me, if you'll cleanse me, if you'll bring me to a new relationship with you, he says this, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, the God of my salvation and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humble heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The last thing that David says is that he intends to use past failure for future ministry. 
And this is where we have to overcome our guilt and our shame and move to a point of conviction. When we remain in guilt and shame, I I know this from my own experience, the enemy comes to you and lies to you and says, God can't use you because you did this. You can't speak to that person because of this sin in your life. And he weighs you down with guilt and shame and he paralyzes you so that you're not effective for God's kingdom anymore. What David says is, no, God, you've cleansed me. You've made me new. You've forgiven me because of your faithful love. And because of that, I will go and I will teach other rebellious sinners your ways. God, I can use my own story of failure to go and say, hey, I see you going down this path. Don't go down that path. Learn from my mistake. David says, God, I know you want to use. I know it's not perfect. I know it was sin. But God, I I know you want to use it to keep others from committing that sin. God, use me. Use my failures for your glory. God can absolutely do that. God can absolutely do that. I love when David says, God doesn't desire sacrifice, but he desires a broken and humbled heart. And this past week, as I thought about that verse, I thought about some stories of Jesus. And I thought about the call of Peter. Jesus shows up on the beach Peter's been out fishing all night, and he climbs in Peter's boat and says, hey, push away from the shore so that I can teach. So they go out, and Jesus teaches, and then he says, go out to the deep waters and let down your nets. And it's the time of day when it's, they're not supposed to be catching fish, but Peter does it anyways, and they pull in. You, you may remember the story. They pull in so many fish, they get a call for the other boat to come, and both boats are starting to sink because there's so many fish in the net. And Peter looks up, and he recognizes that Jesus is the Lord, and he says, away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Peter, you need counseling. You need to build your self-esteem. You feel good about yourself. No. He says, unworthiness. I can work with that. I can work with that. You see, Jesus was surrounded by religious leaders who felt themselves worthy. And he rejected them. What Jesus is looking for is those who recognize they're unworthy and they're broken. He says, that I can work with. That I can work with. Think about the man. Jesus tells the story of of a Pharisee who stands on the corner and he, he looks up to heaven and he says, thank you God that I am not like these sinners. And on the other corner stands a man, sinful man. Can't even bring himself to look up at God. He just beats his chest. Says, God, forgive me, a sinner. Jesus asked, which one of those men do you think went home, restored, made righteous? See, Jesus looked at the sinful man who was humble and broken. He says, unworthiness, that I could work with. See, most of us have a hard time with our guilt because we feel like deep down we're good. We never get to a point of humility and brokenness We feel like there's something we can do to overcome our sin, that there's some way that we could earn God's favor. We may say that we believe in salvation by grace, but when it comes down to it, we're still weighed down by this idea that I've got to do something to earn God's favor. And what is God's message to us this morning? God's message is repent of your sin. Recognize your sinfulness. Repent of that. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Trust in me and me alone, and I'll restore you. Not only will I restore you, but I will use you for my glory and my goodness. 
Now, I know many of you here this morning have already put your trust in Jesus Christ, but I want to challenge you this morning. When you think about your life, when you think about your walk with the Lord, are you preaching grace but really believing in works? Are you continually seeking to earn God's favor? Are you letting yourself be weighed down by guilt? Or are you, you able to say like David is, God, I know you've forgiven me because of your faithful love. Lord, I'm convicted of my sin. I'm disgusted by it. Give me a plan to move past it. But don't let me be weighed down by my guilt because that's not from you. There are others of you here this morning who have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And I love this psalm because it, it so clearly presents the gospel to us. See, the gospel tells us that, number one, we are sinful people, that we commit sin all the time, every single one of us. In fact, in our elder board this past week, I present my messages, and they all get to share some things, and one of them said, you know what, I think we've had more to offer on this message than any other message. And he said, you know why? And I said, because we're all experienced sinners. And he said, no, I think it's the breakfast burritos, but but I, I thought, yeah, you know, we can contribute all so easily to this because we've all been there, even your elders. We all have to recognize that, number one, we're sinners, and number two, as David says, we can't do it on our own. God, we need you to create in us a clean heart. We need you to renew a steadfast spirit in us. We need you to cleanse us, to purify us, to blot out our sin. And the gospel tells us that God has done that through his son, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. And the great thing is, no matter what your past is, no matter where you've been, God wants to use your story to minister to others. He wants to use that story to minister to others. So I want to challenge you this morning, no matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, if you've yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, my hope is that you would, number one, recognize your need for a Savior. Recognize that you can't do it on your own. And two, recognize that God has already done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no works. There's no amount of church services you can attend, money you can give, good things you can do. It comes down to faith in Christ and Christ alone. This time I'm going to ask our worship team uh, to come up. And I'm going to ask our elders to find their spots. We're going to have elders at the front and elders at the back. I believe that there are many of us here this morning who are continually struggling with guilt. We're weighed down by the weight of our sin because we have yet to fully embrace the grace of God. I want to remind us of what David is absolutely sure of in verse 1. He is absolutely sure of this. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. 1 John 1.9 says that, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David tells us that his, his spirit was broken. His body was broken emotionally, physically he was weighed down by his sin until he confessed. Until he had someone who could come alongside of him and say, let me walk this journey with you, not in condemnation. I'm not here to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm here to remind you that God loves you, that you can get through this. God does not want you to experience this, this weight of guilt that you're experiencing right now. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and there's something in your life 
there's a sin in your life, I would love for you to just close your eyes at this time. Think about your life. What sin is there in your life that God may be saying, hey, it's time for you to be disgusted by that. It's time for you to give that up. I'm not here to make you feel guilty this morning. I'm not here to call out specific sin in your life as the pastor. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in your life. That you would be able to say, Spirit, God, point out the wrongdoing in my life. Show me where I've fallen short. God, give me the strength to desire that no more and to move past that. If that's you, if God's placed something on your heart, our elders are going to be available for prayer. We want to pray with you about that. We want to encourage you in that. There may be others of you here this morning who say, you know what, I've been trying to earn my way to God. I've been trying to earn His favor and it's not working. I want to know more about Jesus that you've talked about. I want to know more about this grace and how I can experience that forgiveness through Him. If that's you, we've got two elders who will be up front here this morning. I'm going to be up front. The worship team's just going to play. We encourage you. Stand. Seek prayer. Ask for, ask for someone to walk this journey with you. God's desire is not that you would be burdened by guilt, but that you experience the conviction that you're a sinner, that your sin offends God, And that there is nothing you can do to overcome that sin, but that God has done it for you. And he stands ready to welcome you back into relationship, to be restored into fellowship with him. If you'll simply rely on him. What is it that you need to be be prayed for this morning? Will you come? Will you pray? Will you be honest with yourself and let the spirit do his work in your life? Stand with us as we sing this morning.